Yes, we're open. Living Faith with Needham UCC, a sermon podcast from the Congregational Church of Needham United Church of Christ, where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, you're invited and welcome. This sermon for Sunday, March 21st, 2021, is entitled Prayer, Making the Connection. It's part five in our eight-part worship series for Lent we're calling Grounded, re-examining core concepts in our faith that help shape what and how we believe. This is a reflection on a reading from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. If you enjoy this podcast and would like to learn more about our open and affirming ministries at the Congregational Church of Needham, or would like to join us for worship some Sunday live via Zoom, simply head over to our website, www.needhamucc.org. Friends, our scripture reading today comes from the New Testament, from the Gospels, from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. I know in the bulletin it says Luke, but I picked the same passage but Matthew's telling of it. So Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Let's listen together for a living word from God for us in these words from Matthew. Jesus said, When you are praying, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your heavenly Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Beloved, God is still speaking to the world. May our hearts be open to listen and to respond. Amen. Continuing in our grounded worship series for Lent where we've been examining core concepts in our faith that shape what and how we believe. Today, we're going to talk about prayer, which is just what Jesus was doing in our scripture reading for today. This passage from Matthew chapter 6 comes to us as part of the larger Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' own reflection on the core concepts of his faith, the faith he shares with us. Specifically here, Jesus is teaching his disciples and therefore teaching us how to pray. But don't we all know how to pray? It would be tempting to think so, but in my experience, we'd be wrong. Or let me put it this way. As a pastor... For more than 20 years now, I can't even begin to count the number of folks I've encountered who struggle to pray or to pray the right way, 
who believe they must be the only one, the only one in the entire sanctuary full of believers who doesn't get this prayer stuff, that everybody else in the room must know how to pray better than they do. Let me put that misconception to rest. Most folks struggle to pray. How, when, why to pray, where to put our hands, even pastors. Don't let the facade fool you. Just because pastors can pray out loud professionally doesn't mean our personal prayer lives are all that easy. After all, professional out loud prayer is just a tiny sliver of the hours in the day, in the days, in the week, in the weeks of the years of our lives. Every time I think about prayer, I remember a favorite story from Garrison Keillor's News from Lake Wobegon for his Prairie Home Companion radio series. These stories about a mythical little town in Minnesota where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average have long been favorites of mine. In addition to being excellent examples of the storyteller's art, these not-so-tall tales also acted in my life as a sort of substitute family memories of relatives in Minnesota, my mother's people, whom I never really knew all that well. But oh, they are recognizable. Like the members of the congregation over at Lake Wobregon Lutheran Church, who were all in a tizzy this past week since they received a letter from Pastor Inkvist explaining that due to his rising concern that they might be missing the point on some of their own core concepts of faith, he would be calling on a layperson at random to offer the closing prayer at the conclusion of this Sunday's service. This caused a bit of a stir among the members many of whom couldn't remember the last time that they had prayed out loud in public. Carl Bunsen thought that for him, it perhaps had been way back in 1944, in the summer at a Luther League youth retreat at Camp Tippewakan, where he stood up, as he had been told to do hours before, to offer a prayer at the evening vespers a prayer which he had spent the intervening hours laboring over and carefully writing out, and which now, thanks to the beautiful sunset over the lake, he found he was completely unable to read off the crumpled index card in his hand. And so he had had to make it up. And it had not gone well. And so on Sunday, as the pastor ground his way through a seemingly unconsciously appropriate sermon on the sufferings of Job, rounding the corner from page three to page four of his almost always six-page sermon, turning the pages over on the pulpit like a kind of dependable odometer, those same members found themselves staring out the window or up at the ceiling and then down, down at the little slips of paper, little handwritten notes they'd brought in with them, stashed in the pages of their Bible, practicing 
praying in their heads, O thou who um, didst promise, um, ask and it shall be given to you, knock um, and it shall be open. We come to you now today. O Lord, who didst say, um, suffer the little children to come unto me, we come now as little children, not with the fluency of expression, but we come unto thee silently, each praying silently in his or her heart. But as leery as they were, they had all shown up. All of them. They were so curious to see somebody get called on, get called out in this way. So curious to see it happen to somebody. They were willing to run the risk of it happening to themselves. As comic as that may be, it's also indicative of the kind of anxiety about prayer I've heard from folks over the years. Not just praying in public, in church, Though, of course, that adds an extra layer of anxiety, but even about praying in private. Am I doing it right? Am I saying the right things, coming from the right place in my heart? And whether or not I am, is God listening? Is God listening to me? Surely, God is so busy caring for the whole world. What are my little problems, my little life? What are my little prayers? No matter how heartfelt, when weighed against the prayers and the problems of the whole wide world. At this point, I'd like to introduce you to Julian of Norwich. Julian, we don't actually know her real name lived in the 14th century in Norwich, in the east of England, where she was an anchorite, which, since I guess that most of you are not familiar with anchorites, I will tell you is a kind of religious hermit. She was a laywoman who had taken vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, and prayer before she was literally sealed up in a cell attached to the Church of St. Julian there in Norwich. She would live out the rest of her life in that little room where her communication with the world would be limited to three windows. One to the street for light, one to the kitchens for her daily necessities, and one to the sanctuary of the church to receive the blessed sacrament and to talk with those who came to her for spiritual counsel and for prayer. There is a popular misconception that folks who choose the monastic life are taking the easy way out, that they are retreating from the cares of the world into the rarefied atmosphere of the church Amazingly, many church folk themselves believe this to be the case, despite the overwhelming evidence that church people are some of the very peopliest people around, and church problems some of the very most problematic. Spiritual writer Kathleen Norris sums up the challenge of living in intentional community this way, plainly. 
Imagine you've entered the cloister only to discover that you will be sat down at table next to someone who slurps their soup every day, three times a day for the rest of your life. That's not easier. In fact, that's a lot harder. Now imagine it's the 14th century, the Middle Ages, some call it the Dark Ages. In addition to the everyday challenges of life in such a time, the city in which you live, once the second most populous in all of England, has been ravaged by subsequent waves of a pandemic, the Black Death, which has killed off three quarters of the population perhaps 18,000 of the total 25,000 souls, perhaps including your own family, maybe even your own children. And it's your job, your inescapable job for the rest of your life, since you're literally confined to the church, to witness all that, to bear all that in your heart and your mind and your body, and then to pray, to pray to God. What do you say? Hardly what I call escapism. That's not a retreat, that's an advance. But how, how do you do that? How do you make that connection when the world is seemingly fragmented completely. How to hold your own problems, your own prayers, alongside those of your neighbors, of strangers, even of your enemies, as Jesus instructed us to pray, and how, how to connect with God in the midst of everything. Was God even listening? Did God even care? To top it all off, On May 8th, in the year of our Lord, 1373, at the age of 30, Julian herself fell ill, gravely ill. So sick, they sent for a priest to offer her the last rites. And as that priest held the crucifix, the little carved cross bearing the body of Jesus crucified before her dimming eyes, it all came alive. Julian received a vision. She had 16 visions in all that night, what she called showings from the Lord, which she later wrote down once early on and then again later after decades more reflection on this core experience. At the heart of these revelations of divine love, as she called them, shared with her in her suffering by the suffering Jesus, was one particular, one peculiar vision. Julian said that in this vision, the Lord also showed me a little thing, the size of a hazelnut in the palm of my hand. And it was as round as a ball. I looked at it with my mind's eye and thought, What can this be? You heard that right. At the 
core, at the heart of this divine revelation to this revered mystic theologian, the very earliest woman author we know in the English language, a contemporary of Chaucer, whose words have been preserved down through the ages against all odds and against the vicissitudes of life and the church for almost 700 years, at the heart of it lies a hazelnut. If you haven't seen a hazelnut lately outside of a Nutella jar, this is what it looks like with the shell removed. I am fortunate enough to live in a house where we keep hazelnuts in the pantry. You can see that it is indeed a very small thing. It's even smaller if I don't hold it right up to the camera, if you see it in the palm of my hand. It is a very small thing, tiny even, naked and insignificant for sure in the grand scheme of things. Oh, but this is what made the connection for Julian. For when she asked, what can this be? She said, the answer came to me, it is all that is made. In other words, this little bit of next to nothing, barely noticeable, barely even there, stands in for all the bits of next to nothingness that make up the whole world and all the people in it. By showing Julian this little thing, God was showing her everything and her connection to it. And it moved Julian to an aching compassion for the vulnerability of it all, of us all, and her own. I wondered how it could last, she said. For it was so small, I thought it might suddenly have disappeared. And the answer in my mind was, it lasts and it will last forever because God loves it. And everything exists in the same way by the love of God. In this little thing, she said, I saw three properties. The first is that God made it. The second, that God loves it. The third, that God cares for it. In Julian's vision, in this new way of looking at the world, this little thing like her own little life and the lives of all the little everyday people coming and going, hoping and fearing, living and dying around her became a kind of holy icon, a revelation from the divine of the divine, a revelation of purpose in the midst of meaninglessness, of the connections between us all, the love that binds us to God and to one another. All this from one tiny hazelnut cradled in the hollow of her hand. Even as the prophet Isaiah reminds us, God holds all the heavens and the earth, the mountains and the hills in the hollow of God's hand holds them and us in love.
this vision of being simultaneously tiny, yes, but of infinite value, upheld with infinite care and being connected to all the other tiny atomic lives bouncing around this way and that seemingly at random, but that together make up God's own creation, good and very good, loved and well-loved. This is what opened Julian's heart through the gift of prayer. It connected her to everyone and empowered her to pray for everyone, for the whole world, for her neighbors, and for herself. She put it this way. For if I look solely at myself, I am really nothing. But as one of humanity in general, I am, I hope, in oneness with all my neighbors. For upon this oneness depends the life of all. For God is all that is good as I see it. And God has made all that is made. And God loves all that God has made. And they who love all their neighbors for God's sake, love all that is. That is to say, all that is made and the maker of all. For in us is God and God is in everything. Oh, the Lord love a mystic. Friends, as Jesus himself reminds us, do not be afraid to pray. Do not worry about finding the right words. In fact, do not heap up empty phrases as you see others do, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your heavenly father knows what you need before you ask. The one Jesus knew intimately as Abba, not just father, but daddy. The one Julian knew radically and intimately as mother, mama isn't waiting for you to pray right in order to then reward you with love. Small as we are, no bigger than a hazelnut, really, when it comes right down to it. God loves us first, already, more than we can imagine, now and forever. And that is why we can pray at all. That is why we can dare to pray to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn, to face our sufferings and the sufferings of our neighbors in this present age. That is why we can risk being connected even to all of this pain because God is connected to us and to our pain as Julian saw in the suffering of Christ, not just upon the cross, but in the crucible of daily life with its thousand nails, large and small, and all of them sharp. This is what connects us as we pray and grieve and shake with anger along with the families of those 
persons, particularly those persons of Asian descent, murdered in Atlanta, Georgia this week. This is how we can dare to pray. Because like the mystics before us, like blessed Julian, we hold on to a vision of the world that doesn't run from the nitty gritty smallness and pain of it all, that doesn't retreat and retreat and retreat, but dares to advance, dares to go out into the world, dares to believe that we, along with everything and everyone else, are nevertheless loved with an utterly unshakable love by the one who is better than the best kind of mother, the best kind of father, our father, who art on earth with us as in heaven. Thanks be to God for this revelation of divine love and this gift of prayer. And so, friends, if you have heard the word of God preached here today, remember to give all honor and glory to our one God, creator, Christ, and Holy Spirit. Amen.